Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 8. I'm working my way through a book called The Global War on Christians. Uh, the book begins with this statement, Christians today indisputably are the most persecuted religious body on the planet. The U.S. State Department estimates that more than 60 nations in our world today have governments that are actively persecuting Christians in their population. Uh, Some examples of that would be the nation of Egypt. Last summer, August 2013, Egypt suffered the worst anti-Christian violence that had taken place in seven centuries in that nation. Thirty-eight churches were destroyed in one incident. Six Christians were killed. Seven Christians kidnapped. August 2013. In North Korea, North Korea is generally understood to be the most dangerous place in the world to be a Christian. Uh, In that nation, there are prison camps where Christians are sent. Christians are sometimes tortured for their faith, sometimes executed. Uh, Since 1953, it's estimated that as many as 300,000 Christians have simply disappeared in North Korea and presumed to be dead. In Pakistan, uh, another example, again, last summer, actually in September 2013, Um, There was the worst attack on Christians in that nation's history. A church called All Saints Church suffered an attack from two suicide bombers. Uh, While church was in session, Sunday school was in session, um, 81 people killed in that attack in Pakistan. Now here in the United States, um, thankfully, we are not in a situation where where we're suffering uh, this kind of persecution, though we should be aware that there are people who worship with us here at New Life who are from some of these nations where persecution is taking place. Some of you know Mina. Mina was here last Sunday, gave a testimony uh, about the mission trip that he is going on, uh, where he is right now, actually. And uh, Mina, in part, came to the United States to flee some of the persecution that he was suffering as a Christian in Egypt. Uh, We also have people here in the congregation from China, and China is a place where persecution also takes place at some level, and uh, I know there's some concern about uh, returning to that country uh, by our Chinese friends. So although here in the United States we, we don't face this kind of active persecution, this kind of active hostility, but as I have been mentioning as we go through this sermon series, there does seem to be an increase of hostility against Christians. The culture in which we live seems to be increasingly willing to reject what Christians believe and what Christians hold most dear. Uh, It seems like we're on a trajectory toward further hostility and persecution. I mean, whether that's going to happen, I don't know. Only God knows the future. Uh, I'm not trying to alarm you. I'm not trying to get you to overreact. Um, But it is worth contemplating that it is more the norm than not for Christians to be in a position where they endure at least some level of hostility from the world. At the end of 
this book of 1 Peter, Peter says, chapter 4, verse 12, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal which comes upon you. Don't be surprised at that. I think the context of this book would suggest that that fiery ordeal is primarily some kind of hostility or persecution suffered by Peter's readers. And Jesus himself says, they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. So we shouldn't be surprised that this kind of thing is happening. The fact that in the United States here over the last 230 plus years we haven't had to endure much persecution is really more the exception to the rule. So where are we going in the future? I, I don't know. Um, you know personally, I, I, I doubt that we're all here today going to be put in jail for our faith. I, I don't think that's going to happen immediately. But I think we're moving in a direction where maybe our children will, and where maybe our grandchildren will. It's a quote, famous quote by a, a Catholic, the Cardinal uh, Francis George. He said this, he said, I expect to die in my bed. By that he just means a, a normal death. I expect to die in my bed, but my successor will die in prison, and his successor will die a martyr in the public square. That's his prognosis, his prediction about where we're headed as a nation. Now, this is alarming. Again, I know this is kind of scary. Um, maybe some of you have been thinking about this, contemplating this. You're looking at what's happening in the news. You're seeing how things are, are changing, and, and you're, you're kind of worried. You're a little bit apprehensive. You're thinking, what's going to happen to me? What's going to happen to my church? What's going to happen to Christians? And Peter here is writing to readers who are experiencing that exact same kind of hostility. And what he does here in this letter is he writes to give them hope. That's why we're calling this sermon series Walking in Hope. There is hope in the scriptures for those who are facing the rejection of the world, the rejection of the culture in which we live, the rejection of the institutions that we live and work in. And that's what we're talking about here this morning, the hope in the gospel for the rejected in this world. Hope for the rejected. So we're looking at verses 4 through 8 in chapter 2. If you have that, please stand and uh, let's look to this text to find the hope that God by His Spirit would have for us as we continue to seek to live faithfully before Him uh, in a hostile world. First Peter 2, verse 4. As you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. God in heaven, we look to you now by your spirit. Please, Lord, reveal yourself to us in truth God, open our eyes. Lord, give us faith. Father, equip us to respond in a way that pleases you to your word as it goes forth now. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. 
Well, there's three things here that I believe Peter is trying to communicate uh, to those who are experiencing some degree of rejection from the world or maybe afraid of the rejection that might be coming in the future. And so we're going to go through these. I hope you have a Bible with you. We're going to be going, uh, looking into this text in some detail. But here's the first thing that Peter uh, is getting through to us. One is this, that God is building His church with those who have been rejected by the world. God is building His church with the rejected. So let's look here at the text. Verse 4, Peter says, as you come to Him, as you come to Jesus. Now, I think Peter is thinking of those who came to Him in faith for the very first time, became a Christian, but I think Peter's also talking about those who come to Jesus on an ongoing basis those who come to Jesus in prayer, those who come to Jesus in His Word, those who come to Jesus like you all are right now coming to this place of worship. You have come to Jesus today. That's why you're here. That's what we just sang about a few moments ago, coming to Jesus. As you continually come to Jesus and worship Him and know Him and get conformed to His image, what will likely happen is that you will find yourself in a position where you are increasingly out of step with the way the world thinks and believes, that you'll find yourself in a position where rejection from the world is a more common thing. Now, this rejection can come in a number of different ways. It might not be a suicide bomber coming into our new sanctuary and blowing it up. I mean, perhaps that's not something for us to be concerned about, but still there, is, there are ways in which we experience this kind of pressure. Uh, just by taking a strong moral stand on some social and ethical issues. You very well might get labeled a bigot or self-righteous or proud or judgmental. I mean, that's not nearly as bad as having your church blown up, but it, it's a certain kind of rejection from the world. Maybe you're in a job where you want to be in church on Sundays. Your employer doesn't understand that it's important for you to have Sundays off. He, she just doesn't get that. And that's a struggle for you as a Christian living in this world. Maybe you're in a relationship, a romantic relationship, and, and you perceive that this person for whom you have great affection is not a Christian. This person is not going in the same direction as you, and so you sense the need to cut that off and to end that relationship. It's not necessarily you being rejected, but there's a separation there between you and a person that you have affection for. You're, you're detached from people. You're feeling lonely. You're feeling separated. This is a very common experience of Christians in a world that is hostile to our faith. We feel like we're rejected. What Peter is telling us here in verse 5 is this. He's giving hope to his readers by saying, Behind the scenes, while you're out in the world getting rejected, here's what God's doing. He says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. God is at work constructing His church one stone at a time, one person at a time, assembling us into a community of faith, giving us brothers and sisters with whom we can find this connection that we struggle so hard to find in the world. I mean, just think of that image, a spiritual house. I mean, what do we think of? We think of a house. We think of a place where we flee for, for protection, a place for 
comfort, a place where we find hospitality, a place where we're fed, a place where we find our family. That's what this place is, friends. That's what this church is. That's one of the reasons it exists. It's for you who are out in the world seeking to live faithfully, finding yourself out of step, finding yourself lonely and disenchanted. What this text reminds you of is this is your family. These are your brothers and sisters. This is a spiritual house for you, Christian. That's what God's doing. He's building us up a little bit at a time. And, you know, this is why it always comes to my attention when I see texts like this, just this trend in our culture, and I've mentioned this many times before, but there's just this trend that, that encourages people to say, you know, I'm, I'm a spiritual person, but I don't like institutional religion. You know, I love Jesus, but I can't stand his church. There's books going being released all the time, saying this kind of thing. There's one that came out recently, just this year. How to be a Christian without going to church. The unofficial guide to alternative forms of Christian community. And this Kelly Bean lays out a case for how you can be a healthy Christian and you don't have to bother with the church at all. The book begins with Kelly curled up in a chair with a cup of coffee and her Bible, having fellowship with Jesus on a Sunday morning, and for her, that's church. Here's my theory. I think that kind of attitude that is so prevalent in our culture only works in a place like America, in a place where persecution has been largely absent. In a culture like this, to some degree, maybe you can get away with this. But just as soon as the heat gets turned up, just as soon as you start wondering whether you're going to live into next week or whether you're going to be able to hold on to your job or whether your house is going to be burned down for your faith, suddenly you want to be with other Christians. You want to be with other living stones. You want to be part of this movement, this building program that God is involved in in constructing the household of God, the spiritual house. You know, an illustration of this is we love to grill out, and I'm kind of old-fashioned. I, I continue to grill with the old the charcoals, you know, pile them up in a pile and light them. I used to use lighter fluid. I found one of those kind of canisters, of cylinders now. You can put your charcoal in the cylinders. You put newspaper underneath and light the newspaper, and it lights the coals without the charcoal. It's a good deal. You know, have charcoal-tasting food, which is wonderful. But whenever I do this, I stack up these coals and I put them in a pile. And as you know, in order for those coals to remain hot, what? They have to stay together. Inevitably, whenever I do this, there's always a coal that kind of rolls off to the side. And generally, I don't have anything in my hand, tweezers or anything, so I just let it, let it stay there. And what happens to that coal that rolls off to the side? It turns cold, right? The little red glow starts to fade. That's a perfect illustration of what it's like for a Christian who decides that he or she is going to try to live apart from the spiritual house that God is building. You're going to grow cold. You need to stay close to your brothers and sisters in order to remain hot for Jesus. You've got to be close, and the church is the means by which God is established for that to happen.
So that's what God's doing. He's building this spiritual house. Now, what is God building us up to do? If we continue down in this text, look at verse 5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for what? To be a holy priesthood. Now, that is a very significant phrase. There's something very encouraging for all of us in, in that. The priesthood in the Old Testament, those were those who were appointed to go into the Holy of Holies and intercede for the people before God. In the Old Testament, it was the priests who went to God. That's why verse 4 is really pretty revolutionary. As you come to Him, Peter says. See, in the Old Testament, you didn't just go to God. You had to go to God through the priest. But here Peter is saying, no, in the New Testament age, it's very different. We are a royal priesthood. We're all priests through Jesus Christ. We all have intimate access to God. All of us through Christ can come to God immediately and intimately through our high priest who went before us. And that applies to everyone who's a Christian. You know, Brian and I as pastors, we don't have some... some you know, quick access to God that you guys don't. It's not like we have an 800 number to reach God and, and you all have to pay a long distance fee. It's not like God is sitting there taking calls and when he hears a call from you who sit in the pew, he says, no, please hold my calls, I don't have time. But oh, if Pastor Bob or Pastor Brian calls, we'll certainly put them right through. They're pastors. And that's the way a lot of people think of the pastorate, as if the pastors have this priestly role and the ordinary Christian doesn't. What Peter is saying is that we, as a body of believers, are all a holy priesthood. You have access to the Father through Christ. And what is the purpose of being a holy priesthood? He goes on to say it's to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Spiritual sacrifices, not animal sacrifices, not goats and rams and bulls like were offered in the Old Testament, but spiritual sacrifices. I think what Peter means is just anything that we offer up in sacrifice to God, our time, our money, our service, our talents, the time that you're spending right now, you're sacrificing your time to be here, to worship God. Your willingness to connect with somebody who's in a mess of a situation in his or her life, and you walk with that person. You're there for that person. You're going to listen to that person. You're using your gifts in service to the church. Those are the spiritual sacrifices that Peter is talking about. But what God is doing is we're out in the world and we're struggling and we're battered and we're beat up. God is building up this eternal, enduring community of priests that will one day reign over the whole earth. There's hope in that, isn't there? God building up His church with the rejected. Well, secondly, God's will... More hope here for the rejected. What we learn now is that God's will prevails in those who reject Him. That even as people reject the gospel and reject God, nonetheless, in that situation, God's will prevails. So let me explain um, what I mean by that. The passage continues with three what we could call stone passages. You'll notice these quotations from the Old Testament. The first one in verse 6, 
um, which we'll talk about in more detail later, so I'm going to skip over that right now. But in verse 6, it's a quotation from Isaiah 28:16, and it involves this cornerstone, so stone passage. Second one is in verse 7. <clears throat> in verse 7, it says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That's a quotation from Isaiah, excuse me, from Psalm 118.22. So Peter is taking that psalm and quoting it here. Now, this is a very interesting psalm. It's quoted a couple times in the New Testament. It's quoted by Jesus himself, actually, in Mark chapter 12. When Mark tells this story of the parable of the tenants, do you remember that? The parable of the tenants. Jesus tells this story. He says there was a landowner. He had a vineyard. He leased out his vineyard to tenants to harvest his vineyard and take care of it. The landowner left, and then he sent some of his men to go back to the vineyard to gather up the harvest, and when those men got there, they got turned away and mistreated. And this happened a couple of different occasions until the landowner finally said, here's what I'll do. I'll send my son. Certainly they'll respect him. The landowner sends his son to the vineyard, and the tenants take him, and they kill him. That's the parable of the tenants. Jesus tells this story, and it's a very obvious parallel to the gospel, isn't it? What Jesus is communicating is that God himself owns the whole earth, just like the landowner owned the vineyard. And he sent his son into the world, and what we did is we killed him. And then at the end of that parable, Jesus quotes this same passage from Psalm 118. He says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And so Peter takes this and does something similar with it. Just as Jesus took that and applied it to himself, Peter now does the same thing. What Peter is saying here is that the stone is Jesus, and he was rejected by the builders the builders at the time would have been the religious leaders. But what Peter is talking about, if you look back earlier in verse 7, is those who do not believe. So those who do not believe have rejected Jesus. But what has become of that is that Jesus, this stone rejected, has become the cornerstone. So this very key image comes out of this text. Jesus is the cornerstone. Now, what what is a cornerstone? What's the significance of that? Well, a cornerstone is simply the focal point of any building. The cornerstone is the thing on which everything else depends. It's the foundation of an entire structure. What Peter's saying here is that although people have rejected Jesus as this stone, he has been resurrected from the dead after his death and has now become the cornerstone. And by virtue of being the cornerstone, he is now the center of all of history. He is at the focal point of everything that happens. In Jesus, all things hold together. Without Jesus, all things fall apart. It is from him and through him and to him that are all things. As we're about to sing in a little while, it's on Christ the solid rock I stand and all other ground is sinking sand. Anything else in this life that you seek to build your life on other than Christ is going to turn out to be shaky, unstable foundation. That's what Peter is saying. Jesus is resurrected from the dead, therefore he is the cornerstone, the centerpiece of all human history. 
You just can't overestimate the significance that Jesus Christ plays in all of history. But then Peter goes on, and he says this, this wonderful cornerstone actually has a different effect on different people. So in verse 8, we get to this third stone passage. In verse 8, he quotes Isaiah 8. That's the passage that Jonathan read to us a little while ago. Isaiah 8, 14, which says this, A stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. That's what Jesus is. He's the cornerstone. He's the center of all reality. He's the one on whom everything flows and turns and revolves. And yet he's also a stone that to some is a stumbling block, a rock of offense. Now, how could this be? I mean, why would people be offended at knowing this wonderful Savior has come in love for sinners and has laid down his life and is now resurrected in all of his glory and at the right hand of the Father? Why would that offend people? It's the most beautiful thing that's ever happened. Well, the reason, at least in part, is because of some things that Jesus says. Jesus says this, John 14, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus says there's only one way to be right with God, and that's to come through me and my work. It's the only way. Do you know anybody who's been offended by that statement? People continue to be offended by that today, right? Jesus says this in John 8, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Unless you believe that I am the one that I claim to be, Unless you believe that I am the Messiah sent from God to come and lay down my life for sinners, unless you believe that, you're going to die. You can have all sorts of ideas about who you think I am. You can impose upon me who you want me to be, but unless you believe who I said I am, you're going to die. And how about John chapter 3? Whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of of the only Son of God. There's one Son of God sent for salvation. Those who don't believe in Him are condemned. That's why Jesus is a stumbling block. That's why He's offensive. People don't like this. If you're going to take Jesus, friends, you have to take the whole Jesus. You have to take everything that the Bible says about Him. Another um, part Another teaching of Jesus that is often offensive to people is his claim to be divine. You remember that story in John chapter 8? He's standing talking to the Pharisees. He says, before Abraham was born, I am. What he does is he takes that phrase, I am, the phrase that God himself used for himself in Exodus chapter 3, and then Jesus takes it and applies it to himself, saying, I am God in the flesh. And you know how the Pharisees reacted to that? They were offended And they picked up stones to stone him. Jesus is beautiful. Jesus is wonderful. But not everybody finds him to be that wonderful. And often it's these things that he says that become a stumbling block for people. Here's an example. I've read a lot about John Lennon of the Beatles and his kind of spiritual pilgrimage. And uh, John was a pretty well-read guy. He was interested in different philosophies and religions. He was really fascinated with Jesus. He actually one time claimed to be the reincarnation of Jesus. But here's the thing that John Lennon could never accept, the divinity of Christ. 
He just couldn't accept it. He knew that's what Jesus claimed to be, and he wouldn't believe it. For John Lennon, the divinity of Christ was a stumbling block. But here's a counterexample. Tony Gwynn used to be a ruling elder here at New Life, now serving in a church in Indianapolis. Tony Gwynn was in a hotel room once, picked up a Bible, began to read it, and the divinity of Jesus just jumped off the page at him. He just realized Jesus is God, and he became a Christian on the spot. It's just like to some, it's a beautiful thing. To others, it's an offensive thing. And Peter then goes on through the rest of this verse to kind of explain more about how this works. He says, those who stumble over Jesus, they stumble, look at this, because they disobey the word. The reason that they stumble, at least from a a human perspective, is because of their disobedience to the word. Friends, don't underestimate the way your behavior and your lifestyle will affect what you're willing to believe. The way you live will affect how much you want Jesus. You know, it happens all the time. People are engaged in some kind of disobedience to God's Word, and they love that sin, and they don't want to give it up, and they see Jesus, and there are things about Jesus that are appealing to them, but Jesus says, no, you can't do that thing you're doing. And so people say, well, no thanks, Jesus. I want this more than I want you. There's something about our actions and our behavior that affect what we're willing to believe. I heard one pastor say this, that whenever somebody comes to him and says, Pastor, Uh, I'm starting to have doubts about my faith. His response is, who are you sleeping with? (laughs) Because he knows there is a connection between the way you live and what you're willing to believe. You're a professed Christian. You start sleeping around. You start getting into substance abuse. You start looking at pornography regularly. And all of a sudden, you know, this Jesus just doesn't look so good. That's, that's the explanation that Peter gives from a personal or human perspective, but then he gives a broad kind of bird's eye view from a divine perspective. They stumble because they disobey the word, but then look at this, as they were destined to do. When people stumble over Jesus, they find him offensive and they reject him, what Peter is saying is that this is just simply a way for God's will to prevail even when people reject him. Now, this raises a lot of questions. We talked about it in Sunday school just a little bit. This happened to come up in in Sunday school. Here here is what I think Peter is is getting at. And if you want to talk more about this, I would be happy to. But but here I think is what Peter is saying. He's saying that when people (coughs) reject Jesus, when they find him offensive and they find him to be a stumbling block, very often here's what they're thinking. I'm going to reject Jesus and and I'm going to show him that I don't need him. And so I'm going to disbelieve in him. I'm going to put him aside. I'm going to turn from him. I'm going to overcome him in this way. I'm going to not believe in him and I'll turn and look this way and just kind of hope he just vanishes and kind of disappears that I'm going to get the last word in this situation. Jesus thinks he's Lord and authority, but I'm going to show him by saying, I don't need you. I'm going to get the last word. 
What Peter is saying here is that God always gets the last word. That when somebody says, I reject you, Jesus, what he or she is really doing is only what God had intended to happen all along. God's the one in charge here. Human decision and human actions don't run the universe. God does. And when people reject Jesus, very often they think they're running the universe. That's why they can't stand obedience and submission to Jesus. And what Peter says is that, that that's not going to fly. God, God's going to get the last, the last word. So this is hope that Peter is giving to those who are rejected by the world. God's will always prevails. And you can always trust in that to happen. And it's always going to be good. But one last thing we see. Here's how Peter provides hope for the rejected. That he's building his church through those who are rejected. His will is prevailing in those who reject him. And now we find that God himself was rejected. God himself was rejected in the person of his son. Now, there's a couple contrasts I want to show you that I think are very instructive for us. If you look at verse 4, Peter says, as, as you come to him, a living stone, but look what it says, a living stone rejected by men. Jesus himself was rejected. God comes into this world in the person of Jesus and suffers rejection. This happened in a lot of ways. You remember, Jesus' family thought he was crazy. Jesus' disciples said, your teaching's too hard, and they all left him. The religious leaders of the day said, you're a blasphemer. Over and over again, Jesus is rejected. They send him to a cross. On the way, they spit on him. They beat him. They call him names. They mock him. And they hang him on a cross. It's the ultimate rejection. That's what Peter's talking about here. This living stone rejected by men. In the eyes of the world, Jesus is rejected. But look what the verse goes on to say. But in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Jesus is precious to God the Father. He's precious. He's beautiful. And he's the chosen one. He's the one the Father chose from before the foundation of the world. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are existing in this perfectly blissful relationship. And the Father says to the Son, Son, I'm going to send you into the world. I'm sending you to go and redeem sinners. I'm sending you to go and save people. I love sinners, and I'm sending you to do my work. And the son then goes and does exactly what the father charges him to do. And part of what the father charged him to do was to suffer rejection from sinners, the very sinners that he came to save. So you see this contrast. Jesus is rejected by the world, but he's precious and chosen by God. Now, let's shift and think about this similar kind of contrast for you and for me. As I've been saying, as you live faithfully before Jesus in this world, you are very likely going to suffer rejection and alienation and hostility. Friends, just count on it. I'm not trying to turn you into a bunch of pessimists. I'm just trying to get you ready. We don't enter into the world thinking the world is going to throw a party for us and cheer for us and think we're cool. What we have to expect when we get into the world and live in the world is that our reputation likely is going to suffer for our obedience to Jesus, that we're going to have a more negative than positive social standing, that we're not going to get the honor 
from the world that we're all looking for and hoping to find. In some cases, that'll happen, but in most cases, it, it's just not going to happen. But look at the contrast. Look, look, what, look what God says. Look at verse 6. Here's this first stone passage. It stands in Scripture. This is Isaiah 28. Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And look at this. Remember the cornerstones. Jesus, right? Cornerstone. Dead and resurrected. And whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. Friends, you live in the world. Maybe you feel embarrassed about your faith sometime. You're not sure you want to tell people you're a Christian. You're afraid people are going to shame you for that. What's being promised here is that whoever believes in Jesus Christ, the cornerstone, will never be embarrassed, will never be ashamed. You will never regret it. You will never regret your life devoted to Jesus. You'll never regret it. Not only that, but look what he says in verse 7. Not only will you not be put to shame, but the honor is for you who believe. The honor is not coming from the world, but the honor is there from God the Father for those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. Honor for you. Not honor in this world, but honor from your Creator and your Redeemer. Isn't that the only honor that we really need? Which reminds me of <clears throat> the end of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Um, Peter, Edmund, Susan, and Lucy, it's the end of the story, and they've overcome the White Witch, and Aslan is there, and Aslan ushers them into the Great Hall, and the trumpets are sounding, and Aslan takes the crown and puts it on Peter's head and then puts it on Edmund's head and then puts it on Susan's head and puts it on Lucy's head. And Aslan then ushers them in and seats them on these thrones while all their friends are watching. And Aslan says, once a king in Narnia, always a king in Narnia. Once a queen in Narnia, always a queen in Narnia. Aslan honoring his followers. And I just wonder if that's a bit of a picture of the honor that is in the future of those who trust, love, and follow Jesus. It does say at the end of 1 Peter 5 that when the chief shepherd comes, he's going to give us the unfading crown of glory. That's hope, friends. That's hope. There, there is hope for those who feel rejected by this world. God's building His church. God's will prevails. And all who believe in His Son who is rejected by men will be honored by our Creator. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You that You are <coughs> kind and good. We praise You, Father, that You provide for us all that we need to live faithfully in this world. Help us, God, to be strong, to be faithful to trust you, and to long for the honor that we have from you because of what your Son has done for us. Send us into this world, Lord, to serve you well. Please prepare us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.